Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 238 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Michael Torkeldson, a landscape photographer who has been living on the road since right before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, with his eyes on becoming a full-time photographer. Michael has had to pivot quite a bit since he launched into his full-time career and has recently been putting in the hard work of writing a self-published book on composition. Michael and I chat a lot about his book project and focus a ton of our time on discussing the challenges of composition in landscape and nature photography. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to tell listeners about an awesome thing that's happening for one of our listeners and Patreon supporters, Michael Rung. Michael recently partnered with Adobe to release the world's first tutorial for Lightroom masking on his YouTube channel. At nearly one hour long, his tutorial should help you understand how to use all the new features in your own workflow. But it's a huge change to Lightroom. So whether you're still feeling a little lost with the new masking features, or need some help with Lightroom in general, or maybe you want to receive feedback on some of your images, Michael offers online one-to-one lessons that are tailored to meet your specific needs. Now, he wants to extend a special offer to you. The first 20 listeners to book an online session with Michael between now and December 31st will receive 30% off. This is an exclusive discount only for listeners of the podcast. Head to michaelrungphotography.com forward slash f-stop for more details and to contact him to set up a session today. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Michael Torkelson, it's so cool to have you on the podcast, my friend. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, and I have to uh, thank you for a couple things. One, thank you for supporting the podcast over on Patreon for the last year and also for helping Bree co-moderate some of the uh, clubhouse chats that we have. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good time over there. I like kind of the setup. I think me and Bree are a good combo. She's kind of like the main person, color commentary, and I keep everything on track and facilitate the uh, photographers and the audience members. So I enjoy being part of that. Yeah, it's fun. It's, uh, it's good to have roles too. <laughs> <laughs> I just keep people online. I like, yeah, you got you got to crack the whip sometimes. That's right. Yeah. Well, cool, man. So let's uh let's just dive right in. I first of all, I would love for you to just um, kind of introduce yourself to the audience. Um, tell them a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got into photography. Yeah. So re- only recently have I gone full time into photography. And before that, I was kind of in the corporate world doing photography on the side and never could really like get away from it. I was like, well, if I do, it's going to be like a significant pay cut. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, just for all those reasons, right? You're supposed to have a regular job and whatnot. So it wasn't until recently that mindset changed. But how I got into photography is that I've always kind of been into photography. So as a kid, my grandmother on one side of the family, she's an artist. My mom on the other side of the family, she's an artist. So at an early age, they were putting me into art classes. Like nothing super formal, just after school stuff, summer stuff. So at an early age, I was always drawing and sketching and 
really doing that more than I was paying attention in class. <laughs> I had my book <laughs> open and I'd be sketching something and totally not paying attention. So yeah, my sketches were great. My grades were not very good. <laughs> then um, my mom bought or started a one hour film lab in our small town. So after school, I would go over there and just be surrounded by these big machines developing film. And so I got free film and I got free film processing and I got free cameras and been shooting early, like since probably 13 years old and hardly any of those images are any good, but I was like kind of in the industry. And then as um, I started getting a little older and my friends, we started doing other stuff like road trips and getting cars. So I take pictures of us in the, our cars and a couple of those I actually like had a vision for. It's like, okay, let's take your Mustang, which was uh, white and blue. And I know this place in town and it's got this wall and it's kind of white and gray and it's similar to the Mustang. So we'd set it up over there and I would take some photos. And then um, another pre-visualization I had was this windmill on a friend's property. I was like, oh, I want the sun behind it with a starburst and you know, a red background. And so I didn't know how to like do those things, but we had the equipment. So I got uh, a orange filter out of the shop cabinet and a starburst filter, put that on and went out and I, I took this photo. And so there's a couple gems in that old box of photos that I have stored somewhere that are actually okay, but there's still hundreds of others that are not very good at all. Oh, you basically just described my entire Lightroom catalog, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I want to I go back to the one-hour photo thing. Okay. So, so I'm assuming you got to see some of the processed film, and were, was there anything in there that was like, like has a really funny story attached to it? Oh, my gosh, yes. So <laughs> there's, there's a, lot, a lot of stories. Stuff All right, that, hit, hit, hit us with a couple of really good ones. Okay. During spring break, everybody would go off to spring break and you do what you do in spring break. Well, there's only one place in town to get your film developed unless you like took it to Eckerd's and that was my mom's place. So I'm in there and I'm developing film and then you start seeing people, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, like they're on the beach, you know, they're doing this or doing that. And they, Whoa. Okay. Now they're doing something there. All right. Hey, uh, you might want to develop these for me. Because uh, I know these people and don't need to see anymore. We probably don't want to <laughs> include that on the podcast. So it, it was it was pornography, wasn't it, Michael? Well, you know, it's what couples do. Right, let's it. strike that. I, I probably have a better one to talk about. I know there's no good ones to talk about. Like we saw, the police would come in with suicide photos and murder oh, no. photos, and we saw all of that. Um, so, so this is a, a small town. Yeah. Yeah. It's a super small town. Gotcha. There was a, another big accident in town. We, uh, we had this salt dome, uh, this hollowed out area deep underground that the local gas company would use to store gas. So one of the valves on top had a leak and one morning it leaked gas, uh, this, um, when I mean gas, not like gasoline, but like, like vapor, vapor. gas, yeah. vapor into that valley and then a school bus drove through it and it ignited that and it exploded oh my it, gosh yeah so we saw all the devastation like 
the insurance companies came in, they flew people in, they took photos, the police were there, maybe the FBI, I don't know. But we got all of that film and we had to develop all of that film and they got yeah. priority over everybody else. So tons of destruction and uh, whatnot. We saw it all basically firsthand. So on the lighter side of things, by, <laughs> by looking at the film uh, that you processed, I'm really curious, did you learn anything about photography uh, by studying other people's photographs? Not there. I do now. But okay. there, um, you know, we had all the magazines, Fuji, Kodak. And so I would be bored waiting to go home. Uh, <laughs> you know, mom's driving us home. She also owns a shop. So we got to wait for her to get off of work. I would flip through those magazines and I would see all kinds of stuff there. And then I would go out and try to mimic that. Well, cool. That's a uh, that's super interesting. I, I bet you got to see some really interesting stuff. Yeah, we did. It was mostly like snapshots, family vacations, stuff like that. wasn't really. We didn't get a lot of really fine art photography there. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see that. Yeah. Well, cool, man. So I know that we hung out one night in. Colorado in fall last year and you were in the middle of a kind of getting going on a big adventure. So tell us a little bit about uh, this adventure you've been on and, and living living nomadically during COVID. would love to hear about why you decided to, to go on that journey. Yeah. So that when we met up, that was right at the beginning. I had just finished working on the trailer and hit the road and headed straight to Colorado to try to get those those fall colors. And the idea was is that um, I'm going to quit my job. Everybody, every photographer's dream, right? I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go full-time. And so I decided one way to do that would be to buy a travel trailer. And it, it was kind of hot at the time. You know, it's still trending pretty hot. But my parents had travel trailers. So it's kind of like in the family, we grew up doing that. So it was just natural progression that like, yeah, that's what I would do. And then in my idea, my mind, that would allow me to go to these beautiful places and live there for several weeks at a time and get to know that, that area intimately. And then the next year, foreshadow COVID, and then the next year <laughs> I would lead workshops in those areas. So that's how I ran into you is I was there in Ridgeway learning the area, taking photos, and then that was going to be stopped for next year. Well, fast forward a couple months later, not six months later, COVID just put a stop to all of that. Right. So I'm living in my trailer. I'm in Portland, Oregon, when COVID just halted everything. And I don't mean just everything for me, but everything worldwide. Uh, right. I had this, this part-time project manager job that I was doing from the trailer. It's only 20 hours a week. It was great. Uh, and that would have gone about six weeks or six months and would have been a nice income while I was waiting kind of for like these workshop stuff to materialize. And then COVID like put a stop to that. So now I don't have like this little cushy job. I can't just pick up and go anywhere because all the national parks are closed down. All the state parks are closed down. And just getting on the road to be like, okay, well, where am I going to go next is a huge risk. Like, what if I can't travel state to state? Then I'm stuck in whatever state. So I was in Portland, right in the gorge, 
like Monoma Falls was 15 minutes away. It's like this, there's no better place to hunker down than right here at a sweet RV spot right along this river. Um, you know, it's Portland, you know, Portland, we yeah. got the beautiful coast there, the Cascade mountains and whatnot. So I just hunkered down there and, and shot, just took photo after photo until the country started to open back up. And by the time it was more stabilized and dependable to like travel around, it was summer in the Pacific Northwest. So why leave? So I just stayed there. <laughs> and is that where you're at still? No. Um, so I've been all over. Right now I'm in Tennessee outside of Nashville. Spending okay. some time here. Yeah, I got a project working on here. And um, I'm going to do some fall shooting around here. And then I think maybe head up to... Um, the Smokies, and then maybe back down to New Orleans and do some photography along the coast. Nice. So having lived in the trailer now for, I guess, almost two years now, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. About two years. What what, what have you learned about photography, about yourself, about the industry? Like what are are the same things that you've come to realize? Well... Being a full-time photographer is a little harder than I thought. I had kind of like, you know, I had laid out like, okay, well, I know I can't depend on print sales. Uh, It's going to have to be a multitude of income streams. And of course, like two years ago, I'm like YouTube channel. And uh, as you know, that's really time consuming to do a YouTube channel. Oh, it's brutal. (laughs) It's brutal. I don't know how these people do it. So uh, I did my first video. It's, it's so hard to do one, you're, you're, you're going out into the field and you've got your video camera and you've got your, your photo camera and your brain works differently to operate those two things. So one, yeah. So you don't do either one very well. Well, I'm, I'm looking for beautiful things to photograph, but then I'm also trying to think of like, all right, well, how do I found that film that, how do I make a story around that? And then, um, it's hard to re-engage your brain back into, okay, well, where's the pretty stuff? Like, what am I going to take a photo of? Once you have all that stuff, your B-roll, your main, your main role, um, the, the photo, the photo, the epic photo that comes out, that juicy goodness, as Gavin would say, you got to go back into the studio and then you got to edit your own photos. Then you got to organize all the video and then you got to start putting the video together into a storyline and then you got to edit the video. And what I learned is it takes for every one minute of video about an hour to edit it. Just just edit, not the other stuff. So a 15 minute video is 15 hours of editing. And Uh, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's brutal. (laughs) Yeah. So now I'm like, okay, well, we're not doing that. So that's off the table. <laughs> so you abandoned that one pretty quickly. <laughs> right away, right away. It, it wasn't enjoyable. I did not, I was not enjoying that. And that was part of the transition is I wasn't enjoying the corporate life. So let's do something that, that gives me fulfillment. And right. photography does and teaching people brings me that fulfillment. But making the YouTube channel, making those videos, no fulfillment. Yeah, it, it wouldn't make sense to jump from being unfulfilled in corporate life to being miserable in photography life. <laughs> yeah, under debt, constant deadlines. Um, with the YouTube algorithm, 
you really need to be pumping out two videos a week. And when you do, YouTube recognizes that and they start promoting you and that's how your channel gets found. If you're not putting out that many videos a week, say you're only doing like one a month, yeah, YouTube's like, no, we need more content than that. We gotta sell ad space. So they really favor those people that are pumping out that content. Yeah, it's brutal. So what, so what other paths have you explored? Well, one of the things I want to talk about on the podcast today is my book on composition. Of course. And so, yeah. And so, well, education is probably the main, the main way to go. And the book is kind of a derivative out of that. I didn't set out to write a book. It wasn't even in my initial kind of business plan to write a book, but yet yeah. that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> well, and you know, COVID definitely put a wrench into a lot of people's dreams and ideas and thoughts that they had. So good for yeah, you absolutely. For, for pivoting, you know? Yeah. Thanks. It really came out of the desire to develop an online class. And with that online class, I was going to develop what they call a lead magnet, where you put out this little piece of free content that potential customers get in exchange for their email. I get their email, they get this great little tidbit of knowledge. So I'm like, well, what do I know well? Like composition. All right, let's write a little primer on composition. So I sat down, started typing away, and two hours later, I'm at like 44 pages, and I'm like, wow, okay, like this is more than a little primer on composition. And then that's when it kind of the seed was like, well, maybe it's a book. Cool. Well, that's awesome. So, I mean, I, I think I... I think we both can agree. I think it's it's great use of our time to really focus our time on the concept of, of composition. You know, I, I think it's probably the most overlooked aspect of landscape photography. And I think also it's probably the hardest to learn, at least for most of us. Um, so what has your experience been in terms of uh, learning about composition and, and, and finding ways to, to become good at it? I would totally agree with that statement. I interviewed... 50 photographers from people who just shoot on their iPhone to um, semi, not semi pro, but like the, the pro hobbyists. And every single one of them said that composition was more important than editing skills. However, not one had invested any money into composition skills and spent very little time concentrating on that skill set. And every one of them agreed it was more important. Uh, and almost everyone had spent money on an editing course. So I'm like, oh, great. So they think it's important, but they won't spend money on it. All right. So how do we overcome that? Because I really want to like write this book that I got 44 pages on. One of the couple reasons it's hard to learn composition is because that's the art part of photography. You, you could say photography is like one third technical skills. How do you work your camera and do those specialty shots? It's one third artistry, which is the, your natural creative kind of juices. And then one third composition, these skills that are learnable that help marry all those, those other two together. And with all three of them, you have like a really good base to make beautiful images. Now you can still make great images with two of those three, but having three of those three, I feel like you're ahead of the game. So learning, when I went to, out to learn composition, 
And the story behind that is I went on vacation to this beautiful beach kind of island resort and I took a bunch of photos and I'm showing those photos to a family member and they were like, your composition's crap. You know, <laughs> true story. And I'm like, yeah, I might, you know, my, I get all bristled about it and I'm like, I'll show you. And the truth was, is I didn't even know what composition meant. Right. So it's like, well, my composition is crap. Like maybe I should learn some composition. So I went and bought like an entry level DSLR and bought a composition tutorial. And while I'm going through that tutorial, there was a lot of information there. Got done with all that, took notes, go out into the field. And all I can remember was the roll thirds. I'm like, there's more to it. There's more to it than that. So it's like, it's time to go back and, and rewatch those videos. But it was super painful to sit down and, and rewatch those videos. I had already seen them once, so I couldn't, my attention span wasn't there. I'm like, well, I need accountability. How can I be accountable for like learning this stuff? What if I taught it to somebody? What if I taught it to the, the local meetup photography group? And so that's what I did. I went on there and I said, all right, we're gonna do five classes. It's free and I'm gonna teach you composition. And I told him shit because I'm trying to learn it and I can't do it on my own. So I rewatched those videos. And in doing that, I wasn't just a passive person watching the videos. I had to learn it to teach it. And so it really allowed me to pay different attention to it and deep dive. And after the first class, people had some comments like, all oh, these images suck. Like, I don't understand, you know, the, the point of that. And it's just straight off of these videos that I was sharing with them and, and some notes I had taken. I'm like, you're right, these images do suck. So I went to the library. So I go to the library because library has a bunch of free resources there. So I'm checking out books on composition. I'm just reading through tons and tons. Each week I'm supplementing the next week's class with what I'm learning in the books. And they slowly got better and better. And I just started adding on to my knowledge. To say all that, all those books, they taught composition at like this theoretical level where they talk about the golden ratio and it would be just the golden ratio and not really like how to apply it. Some of the, the at the end of the chapter exercises were like, go out and take pictures of it. And ugh, like that's not helping me any. And so one, one was was really creative. It was go out and find shapes of the alphabet and take pictures of that and recreate the alphabet in these shapes that you see around town. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of, that's interesting. Well, you go out and do that and you're like, okay, A. You know how hard it is to find stuff that looks like an A? So I'm like, okay, that's fun, but it's not helping me learn photography. Or they're teaching you trip photography, like drop a drop of water into a glass of water and then capture that uh, classic image we all know where the drop comes back up and it makes that cool little funnel. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's neat, but it's still not helping me in my, my day to day. So with the book, I'm hoping to, to change that. And instead of teaching composition on theoretical, where each compositional element is its own island, I'm going to teach it from the, the practical view where it's like, okay, so with the horizon, you can use these four compositional elements to place the horizon, golden ratio, rule of thirds, anchoring, and off center. And then that's how each chapter goes.
And so now you're learning like, okay, here's four ways to make an image instead of like the rule of third is what you should use. Yeah. So I want to talk a lot more about rules. So kind of just what are your quick initial thoughts on compositional rules? Like, are they useful? Are they not useful? What do you think? Well, first, let's change the term rules. So nobody likes rules. They don't be told they have to, to listen to rules or or stay in these rules or laws or, or stuff. So if you think of them as principles or best practices, then they take on like this new meaning. And there's only one that's even called a rule. It's, it's the right. rule of thirds. Even though the golden ratio is basically the same thing, it's not the rule of golden ratio. It's not the rule of S-curve. Um, or the rule of repeating elements. That one's just a badly named rule, and it's giving all the other principles a bad name. So I think there's a lot of resistance with photographers who are already taken beautiful photos, and they're like, well, you need these rules, and you're not using them. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm making these great images, so why are you telling me I need these rules? Obviously, I don't. But knowing these principles is like being a, a, a dancer and learning a different dance move or a different choreograph a move that doesn't restrict your creativity it just it's adding on to that that wealth of knowledge that you have in dancing and now you can take that you can take parts of the tango and the uh, mamba and salsa and you can take this and that and make something totally new and totally different and, and that's really where what, what happens there with some of these professional dancers and that same principle applies for photographers so Instead of saying these are rules, if these are principles, and these principles help guide you to to not make kind of like say not rookie mistakes, but what a lot of photographers are doing, and, and I can say that because this is what I did, and I see it with other people, is you're out there in the field or walking down the street, and you're trying to figure out what you can take a picture of, and a lot of what you're taking pictures of is experimental. You're experimenting with this and you're experimenting with that and you're hoping that those things are going to make beautiful photos now when you know the principles of composition you can see something beautiful and you're like oh you know what there's a shape there or there's this this line that's really interesting and then you make that line your subject and then now all of a sudden you're not guessing what makes a good photo you you know like this tried and true stuff these tried to dance moves that you can incorporate into this image and make a stronger, more compelling image. So the title of your book is Composition is a Dance Move. I Maybe. I, I like it. I do too. I do too. Are you, do I need to license that from you? Yeah, we'll talk later. It's, it's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too late. Too late. I already got the URL for that. Oh, dang. Well, so all right, I know you, you've already touched on touched on this a little bit. I thought it'd be fun to talk through kind of what some of your thoughts on what some keys to composition are in your opinion, because I have some that are in my mind that I've just kind of learned or kind of gravitated towards over the mm -hmm. years. But um, I certainly don't follow rules, but I do I do like kind of having, you know, things in my mind that I'm kind of looking for, you know? So I'm curious yeah. what some of your, what some of the keys are for you. Okay. Right on. Uh, taking a step back, I do have a title 
uh, for my <laughs> book. And it talks about some of the stuff that I just talked about, which is like composition is this hidden language of photography. And once you unlock that, you just open up a world of more opportunity to photograph. Now that delves right into what you just asked me. So some of the keys of composition is once you realize that there's like nine different things that can be a subject, well, all of a sudden you start recognizing these subjects everywhere. So for me, I naturally see shapes and I'm drawn to shapes. If I see a shape, I'm like, oh, look, that's a beautiful shape, right? That's an interesting shape. I'm going to take a picture of it. And my brain doesn't say like, that's a shape. It's like, sees a tree. I mean, like that tree is is unique. I'm gonna take a photo of it. Or Mount Rainier, for those in the Pacific Northwest. Mount Rainier is a triangle. It's a shape. So these things, my eye just naturally picks up on, and I start pointing my camera that way, and I start shooting. Now there's some things that I don't naturally see, and one of those is light. So you can photograph light as a compositional element. And now knowing that this is a composition element. Anytime I see like a ray of light or light hitting something, I'm like, oh, that could be a photo. And I start looking at that and playing around with it and seeing if I can make a photo out of that. Or say you have three, three complementary colors. Well, that could be a, a photo right there. But I don't normally see color. So my brain just kind of skims past that. And a lot of people who don't see the world that way are going to skip over it too. And then they're going to struggle to, to find compositions that they like to photograph. That's so interesting because I don't always see shape, but I definitely see light. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I would say that's more rare. And so that gives you an advantage because you're going to say you and Kane go out shooting. He's going to see something and you're going to see the light. And then one thing I love about shooting with other people is you get, you went out together, you come back and you compare images. And you're like, I didn't even see that. Oh yeah. It's the best. Was, yeah. And, but I was standing right next to you. And so that expands my seeing when I can see what they saw. Right. So one that, that I've kind of learned over the years, but I don't really necessarily know how to explain it. And maybe you have something in your book that kind of, covers this and it's it's kind of the idea of you know visual flow and it's and it's one of those things like either you either it's there or it's not you know it's like the arrangement of the elements in the photograph work well enough together to where your eye naturally moves through the photo because you either have light that's shaping you through or you have mm -hmm. different elements that are kind of like you know i like to anchor the sides with something in the bottom i like to I'm always all about like, try, how do I force somebody to, to keep their eye in the frame as long as possible so that their eye can kind of work through it. And so I just call that visual flow, but I'm curious if you talk at all about that in your book. The, I, I sort of do, because what you just described is composition, like putting <laughs> all those elements <laughs> to putting all, no, honestly though, putting all those elements together and, and arranging those in a pleasing manner, that's what composition is. Uh, the world around us is just is is utter chaos. It's just random stuff here, there, everywhere. And then every now and then we get a glimpse of something like, oh, when you stand right here, this lines up and that lines up. And then you've got this tree. I'm just going to use that tree, that, that magical tree for every example. 
so that magical tree just all lines up and it makes the scene and you're like oh my god i gotta take a picture of it so you you work the scene a little bit you move a little left a little right a little high a little low and then it rearranges all those elements and that's composition composing the scene i think that's half of what you just described and the other half would be as a compositional element is leading lines um, and I do talk about that in the book. Another aspect might be like the focal point, which I don't talk about in the book. It's, it's kind of an advanced topic. It's a topic a lot of artists talk about because they can paint the scene that way and their focal point will be the brightest part of the image or, right. or of their painting. Where right. with photographers, that's a little harder to do. So that leading line, it can be, it can be a physical line like the um, do not pass lines on a road and that perspective when the road goes into the distance that's a, a physical leading line it could be a, a creek that just kind of curves deeper into the scene that's a leading line it could be that light how it falls and then it just makes this diagonal line that stretches deeper into the scene and somebody's eye the viewer they see the light and the light beam and they just follow that down right to your subject or where you want their eye to enter the scene. And then the land takes them up to that mythical tree. You like those trees. It, it's the tree is metaphoric, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just got done photographing uh, aspen trees for like 10 days. So for me, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't metaphorical at all, but, you know, it was literal. You know, composition, especially when you're shooting in those chaotic forests and you know, mm -hmm. you have a lot of elements happening, I think that's when it does get really tricky. And I think that's when you can start to utilize things like patterns and repeating elements and, you know, yes. th things like that. I think that can help. Um, you know, it's it's not always about leading lines or about rule of thirds or whatever. It's like there's lots of different ways to make composition work. Totally, totally. And I hope that that's what my book gives to people. It's right. like, here's a bag of tricks, not tricks and like gimmicks, but like, like here's a bag of tools. And, and when you see something like pull the tool out until, you know, until you find that hammer to hammer the nail. Right. But don't hammer the hammer, the, uh, the screw. Exactly. You should use a screwdriver. Yeah. So here's an example of that. Like, um, and I think about all this stuff all the time. I'm like, okay, well, how can I, how can I make a metaphor that explains a bunch of different stuff to people? So if you go to the hardware store and you look at shovels, you've got your snow shovel, you've got your like regular shovel for just kind of like general use. And then there's a really narrow long shovel that if you've ever worked on a farm, you use it to dig post holes um, and several other type of shovels. You're not going to use that snow shovel to dig a post hole and you're not gonna use that post hole shovel to scoop the snow off of your driveway. So for the different situation, you're gonna use different compositional tools. And, and, and interviewing those photographers, I asked them like, okay, composition friend or foe. And I got a lot of really interesting tidbits from them. Like one person thought that there is a bunch of composition stuff but the rule of thirds is the master rule that is better than all the other ones and i was like you know i could kind of see how you 
you got that, but that's not the case, right? Because he was like, I don't like using the rule of thirds because, you know, I want to do something a little bit different than everybody else. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's possible too. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I always like to think of the rule of thirds as, as a tool that kind of helps you find your way in a forest when you're lost. You know, it's like when you're looking at a scene and you're like, I just don't know how to arrange this scene at all. You know, I'm seeing all this stuff in front of me that's beautiful and I'm just, I just can't, I'm not seeing it. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to go back to the rule of thirds and see if I can at least start there. And I think it kind of helps reset your mind to start to see other things that might be available to you. So I like to use it as kind of a tool to kind of anchor your mind and kind of reset things. And then you can kind of take yeah. off from there. No, that's an excellent use of the rule of thirds. Um, and, it, and a lot of times I actually go through that exact process there. I go up and I see a scene and I'm like, okay, well, there's a, a barn on it. We'll get away from the tree. There's a barn on it. And then th there's a horizon. And I'm like, okay, like, all right, how do I, how do I take the best, the best shot here? So I'll take that horizon and I'll put it on the top third. And I'll see how that looks. And if I don't like that, then I'll drop it down to the bottom third. And if that, if I don't like that, I'll, you know, put it somewhere else, like the golden ratio or anchoring. And then I take the barn and I'm like, okay, so I find where the horizon looks best. And then I'm like, okay, where does the barn look best? If it's super symmetrical, I'll put it right in the middle. But if it's asymmetrical, I'll try it on the left third first. And if I don't like it there, I'll move it to the right third. And so just being really intentional about how you're building the scene uh, is a great way to just move through your options to see what works best. And sometimes the rule of third, it doesn't work in any of those situations. And then you find a different combination working that problem. And then and that's how, um, like you said, it's, it's a good way to use it. Uh, one more thing on that is there's an amazing book by uh, Magnum, Magnum Photographers, and it's Magnum Contact Sheets. And so it's all these famous Magnum photographers throughout the ages, and the book is like two inches thick, and it's nothing but their contact sheets. So you can see their, their negatives of when they approach that scene, and it might be a famous image that you've seen in Time Magazine, well, you get to see all the other stuff that they tried first until oh, wow. that one... Yeah, until that one image was selected by them or the editor. And it's a it's a phenomenal book. Not a lot of landscape photos in there, but just to see how other photographers see. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's I like what you said, too, because it's like I often find myself doing that. I'm sure you do, too, where it's like you're, you're trying to make sense of um, what's in front of you. And so you'll take a photo and you look at it and you're like, hmm, something's not right. So then you like maybe you know, maybe move the horizon down, like partway down your frame or whatever, or up the frame, or maybe you completely get rid of the horizon until mm -hmm, you find something mm -hmm. that makes sense. But I, I like the that they're showing you kind of that iterative process um, that the photographer went through in their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what you said something that is um, pretty right on there is it makes sense. So when you're going through all these compositions, stuff, they're just tools to help you find your way. And you don't know it's worked until you look at it and it just feels right. It just feels like that's the, the best placement of all those elements. Um, it's a gut feeling. 
And, and maybe that's why it's so hard to teach composition is because you're learning all these very static tools that they're awkward to implement at first and you can get some good results with them right away. And then they start, they're all conscious. You're, you're working your conscious mind. And then over time they start becoming subconscious. And then now you're no longer consciously thinking about it. You're just flowing through. You're like in the zone and you're flowing from one thing to the next. And half the time you're skipping that first part where you put the horizon on the top third and then you put it on the bottom third. You just kind of go right to like, you, you set your camera up, you look through and you're like, that just, it just feels right if I move the camera up a little bit. And that's the goal of composition. And that's the goal of my book is to lead you from you're intentionally working the scene with these tools to at the end and some experience down the road, not at the end of the book, because it's, it's a skill you're learning. And, and it takes, it takes a little while to, for your subconscious mind to incorporate all that stuff into then your natural ability um, to just zoom in on what is the best way to arrange this scene in front of you. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I was out uh, for a few days with a friend of mine who's relatively new to photography. Uh, this last trip I went on and, you know, he was showing me the images that he was getting and, you know, really beautiful stuff. Um, but what I think what often happens to us as landscape and nature photographers is that we get overwhelmed by all the beautiful and pretty things that are in front of us. And we want all of it in the photograph. And it's easy to get to fall into that trap where it's like, oh, but I want that pretty cloud that's up there that has that mm -hmm. cool stuff in it. And it's like, yeah, man, but like, does it help your composition? And, and is like, right. is that your subject? And I think so. One of the things that I like to tell people to help them overcome that because it's helped me is uh, subject isolation. Like what really is your subject? Yeah, there's tons of pretty stuff all over the place and all around it. But if that pretty awesome stuff isn't actually helping your composition, then it's okay to exclude it from your picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's I think that's hard to do. It is, and and I don't find that natural. That that does not come natural to me. When I when I went from a crop sensor to a full frame, I was like, oh, oh yeah. my god, this is what. Yeah, this is what I've been missing. Look at all that extra more stuff I can put in there. This is this is amazing. I'm such a better <laughs> photographer with this new camera. And then, um, but it's not natural for me to like zoom in and do close-up shots. So after I, I do, I get that out of my system, I shoot really wide. I then know it's my Achilles heel. So then I zoom in, I'll change lenses or just zoom all the way in and then start working my way out. And then often or more often than not, that's where I'm really finding my, my better images is when I isolate all of the other stuff that my first instinct was to include, I'll come away with a much better image. And then it really kills me when people are like, oh, that's a great image. And you're like, well, it's not what I was going for at first, but then I forced myself to do the opposite of what I normally do. And then voila, there there it is. Yeah, it's, it's especially challenging when you have really awesome conditions, you know, like an amazing sunset or something. It's like, I really want all that amazing color in my photograph. And it's, but it's like, yes, but does it really help tell a story? Um, right. You, have to, you know, right. you really do have to ask yourself the question. Yeah, it's pretty, 
but does it make it a better photograph? And it's like I, sometimes it doesn't, and it's hard to give right. It's it's hard to give it up, right? You're like, I don't want to lose that from this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. So there's an easy answer to that. Shoot shoot it all. Take a picture of the sky and the lake and the tent and the kayak and the motorboat and don't the, the tree. table and, and the tree in the volcano and the pterodactyl. Like just shoot that <laughs> wide scene and then narrow in. Maybe it's just the kayak and in the hammock or maybe it's just the picnic uh, table and the motorboat and then later you can decide which one of those you like better right it's digital's cheap oh it's fun all right well are there any other keys to composition that you wanted to to go over man there's there's so much so like each composition compositional principle or compositional element has its own keys to composing like um, kind of like criteria that defines it. And in the in my book, I outline those so that, and, and I haven't seen that in another, in another book out there. Maybe this is unique or I just haven't read them all. Um, but say like repeating elements. One of the things that defines repeating elements is that that repeating pattern goes from one edge of the frame to the other edge of the frame. So you're filling the frame with just that a repeating element. So you do want to leave that cloud out at that time. And more times than not, you're taking the horizon line out. And another key to that is you want it in focus all the way through because it's the pattern is the subject and not one one piece of that pattern. Mm-hmm. So every compositional element has different keys to composing. Cool. So how many compositional elements do you have in your book? I think just for what can be a subject, it's nine. And then I've got four or five like helper compositional elements that then you combine with that to, to get even better. And there's more than that. Um, you're then you're starting into like some really fringe stuff. Uh, there's one called splitting, which I didn't include in the book. But if you ever see it, like it'll be a really interesting image where you only see, say it's like in street photography, it's a person, but only from shoulders down. And then in their hand, I'm thinking of the image specifically, they're holding a picture of say like somebody who's lost, you know, they're they're handing out lost, they're, they're posting lost person lost pictures. And it's just a headshot of that person. So you have a headshot of the person who's missing, and then you have just the body shot of the person that's putting up those photos. You don't have a complete subject because the person is cut off, but because you combine it, their body with the other person's image, you just have this really unique, interesting photo. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's one that I did not include in the book because it's just so fringe that hardly anybody would encounter that, like just in their normal stuff. I, I like that idea, though. I, think, I feel like it would be really hard to execute in nature, but I guess it's possible. Uh, I, did, I did do that in one of my um, Milky Way photos. So I'm on the Oregon coast, and, there's, and the tide rolled way out. So there's all these tide pools. And instead of getting a full reflection, like a full Milky Way and its full reflection, I only have the, the bottom part of the Milky Way and this this rock way out in the distance. 
and then the rest of the Milky Way is reflected in this pool. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's split and it's super engaging. Yeah, I, I like that style. I think that's fun. It's fun to do with reflections for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one possibility. All right. Well, let's um, let's uh, talk. I want to know a little bit more about the project and kind of why you decided to to do it. I know we covered it a little bit earlier, but I'd be curious to hear about kind of some of your goals for the project and what you hope will uh, happen with it. I'm pausing there because, like, my brain is trying to say, like, do I have goals for this? It's like some of your <laughs> earlier podcasts, you ask your guests, what's your creative process? And I'm like, what's my creative process? Do I have a creative process? Right. And I still don't know. I still don't know the answer to that. But that's one thing I really appreciate about your podcast is, like, these questions that made me think just, just listening to it. So I'm going to release it on Kickstarter. Um, because I think that's a good way to, to get it out there and get it get it financed. It's going to cost about nineteen thousand to get this book this book done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kickstarter is a good way to to raise that money. So my my goal with the book is just to put out this this body of knowledge in a new way that hasn't been done before. I I I. After I did the 44 pages and I'm like, oh, my God, this could be a book. I then concentrated on doing two chapters uh, or three chapters did an intro. What is composition? And then demo chapter number two and then a sample of the compositional element as as like chapter chapter four. And I sent it out to a number of the same photographers that I interviewed. And I was like, um, take a look at it and, and let me know what you think, like does this help you? Is, is this something, a resource that you could use? And one of the guys that had, um, that had read it and filled out the survey said, I've been struggling with compositions for 50 years. And there was some stuff in here that like, I could see how this would, would help me where for decades I've been, I've been struggling with this. So it's, I, I would really, my goal is to help those people that are struggling and I hear all the time. I hear all, I love to go shoot, but I hate looking at my images. I never, I never process my images because I'm not happy with them. Uh, some people are like, I don't want to go pro. I just want a couple photos I can put on my wall. Like this book is for all of that. It's, it's to help them get images that, that they feel that I, this one I want to mount on my wall. I want to put this one on my wall. Or it's like now, not only do I enjoy the going out and taking photos i enjoy looking at them and sharing them with with my friends and peers i love it so i noticed um and you talked a little bit about this but i noticed that you you're licensing a ton of images from other photographers for the book um and obviously that's going to cost you a lot of money um why did you decide to go that particular route and why is it important for you to pay for those images it's just the right thing to do. I mean, it, it, it really, really is there. There's some gray area where I could possibly legally use those images without reimbursement. Cause when you editorialize something, you can use the image without paying, uh, the content creator, or if it's for educational purposes, you can fair use, fair use, quote unquote, fair oh, use right. rules. Sure. Right. 
but honestly, if somebody came to me as like, hey, I want to use your image in a photography book because it's so awesome. I think it's a really great example. Um, I would probably let them use it for free, but I would not be happy about it. I would be like, well, you're going to make money on this book and I'm not going to make money on my image, which is making your book better. It's just the right thing to do to, to, to reach out, get a license agreement and then, and then pay them for the work that they've done. And it's maybe it's acknowledgement as well as like, not only am I acknowledging your work is super fantastic, but I'm going to acknowledge it with dollars. Yeah, that's, I think that's great. I think we all need to do more of that in this field. I, it's funny. I don't mean to get on a soapbox. You always hear people talking about all this new gear that they bought or all these trips they go on. And, but then you have people who are like selling eBooks and selling uh, really useful books or, you know, like that kind of stuff and that they could probably spend way less money on and get way more value out of. So it's, I think we should do more of that as, as a community is support each other financially. So I appreciate you saying that. Oh, thanks. And, and maybe, it, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to start the trend like little old me, but maybe it's one person after another, another person gets inspired and they're like, you know, I'm going to start including other people's photography in my eBooks and make them let, investors or part owners but like part something yeah i know i think it was um greg vaughn he wrote a photographing oregon book several years ago and Mm -hmm. he has tons of other people's photos in that book and it's it's awesome and i and this was way back in the day and i like i think he had a publisher so he wasn't like looking to make a lot of money on it so i don't even think he paid them but he definitely put a lot of people like on the map in terms of being known for like, this was probably in the late nineties, early two thousands. He put that book out for the first time. So, you know, I, I think that's a great way to elevate other photographers, you know, is like try to get them published, you know? Yeah. Well, a, a lot of the stuff that the photographers work, the photographers that I'm using, they're already acclaimed photographers. Um, sure. There's, their skill level is so high that that's what drew me to these images. It's like, Oh, this image is the the perfect reflection of light or color. And so um, I'm not putting anybody on the map. That's not already on the map. Gotcha. (laughs) But you're still recognizing them for their, their achievements. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know this is kind of a touchy subject for a lot of people, but, you know, I think it does relate a lot to the topic of composition. What's your take on photographing icons and your approach to, to those types of scenes? I've thought about this a lot because of your podcast. And it's one of the reasons why I've listened to it since I think from episode three <laughs> um, is, you know, you were, you were, I, I imagine struggling with these ideas, like, am I really an artist if I'm shooting these icons that have already been shot like a hundred times? And so I was seeing my peers shoot those and getting a lot of recognition and, and I'm trying to do something a little different and I'm not getting recognition because of that. Mm-hmm. Just the nature of, of what people like, uh, not reflective of the photographer. And so 
I put a lot of thought into this, and what I've come up with is that icons are known compositions. We know, we've seen them, we go there just to shoot them. It's a composition that we don't have to struggle to figure out. We just go set up, we almost know the exact tripod holes to set up in, and uh, we extend the center column. Oh, of course. You have to, yeah. you have to extend the center column. Yep. Get as high as you can go. <laughs> and then, um, and then you, you take this photo and I, and I do do that and I, and I have done that, but I don't get as much joy from that as I do of wandering in the woods or walking down the street of a new city and then discovering a composition mm-hmm. and then trying to figure out how, how can I take everything I know to see what, to take what's in front of me that I think is beautiful and then create a beautiful photo out of it. Because a lot of times that's hard to do. It's pretty, you can recognize it's pretty and then to capture that on a photo and be reflective of that. It, it just doesn't turn out. You're like, Oh, this, this image is crap, but you should have been there. It was really, it was really pretty. You should have been there. So um, to give an example, I went to San Francisco on a trip and my goal was like, I'm going to shoot every icon in the city. And I had a full schedule. I ran around all day, just shooting, 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 like this one after another. And at the end of the day, I felt ragged mm-hmm. and I didn't get a lot of joy out of it. So I shoot less, less of those than I do now. I, I did shoot recently the, um, and, and that's not always the case. So when I was in Iceland and I went to Kirklafell, that little yeah. mountain and and waterfall yeah when you I first that. when you first see it when you're driving in you're like that can't be it because it yeah, exactly totally i'm like where shape. is it <laughs> yeah like, it oh, that's I know that. <laughs> yeah that's you've been there yeah <laughs> um obviously so it's like middle of it's middle of, almost this beginning of summer it's 3 30 in the morning which is sunrise mm-hmm. and i i set my alarm i wake up 3 30 in the morning and I go out to, to get the best light, get that sunrise. And there's not a soul around me. But it was so incredible to be standing there and just soaking that beauty in. That That is one of the times shooting the icons was super, super enjoyable. Oh, yeah, no doubt. You know, I think it's, I think icons, you know, they, they can get a bad rap. I mean, I think... They're fun because oftentimes I think it's a good reminder or a good lesson. And like when you go, when you go to those types of places and you start to set up your shot and you're looking at it, cause you know, it's not, it's not like you can just set your camera up and you have the photo. Like you still have to pick the right focal length and you know, you still have mm-hmm. to compose. Right. And I think what makes those scenes kind of interesting is like, it can remind you. It's like when you start studying it, it's like, Oh, what really makes this scene is if the light is actually hitting this part of the scene at this time of day, and it has nothing to do with these conditions over here. It's, it's all about like this part getting lit up and this side getting held down by these trees over here. And then like, it's really important that, that there's like clouds over here. Otherwise like the composition just doesn't work. So it's, it's a really good way to, 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 learn about how different elements and different conditions can really affect a composition from working or not. 
Yeah, it, it can really make or break a scene. And I think what you described there is something that you, you can't learn in a book. It's just something that you get about being out there and practicing and being in the field. Because like you said, you could be at that spot, but if you're at the wrong time of the day, that mountain in front of you might be in shadow, so you lose all its detail. Or the sun could be on that waterfall really bright, and it's and it's blowing out the image. So, yeah, that's just one of those things you just learn by experience, I think. Yeah, I agree. So I'm curious, too, in terms of composition, you know, when it comes to photographing those more popular scenes, what's your approach in terms of trying to make it kind of your own? Like, how do you... How do you deviate from what's already been done using compositional techniques? That's a really good question. So that's about working the scene and finding where the best place to stand is to capture that. And I've gone through kind of like my workflow. I I have a workflow when I hit a scene, uh, which is like, okay, I see it. I raise the camera and I take a look at it. I zoom in and out. What elements should I include? And it's like, okay, I like that, but I really need to be over like 10 feet because then it would move this tree over here and that tractor over here and that would balance the image better. So then I walk over there to that spot and then I'll see this this part of the ground that's beat down because everybody's walked over there. I'm like, all right, well, they're following, the, they're following composition, um, but that seems to be the best spot for that. Um, it's it's really maybe about how you see the world. Like you said, you see light and I see shapes. So if you focus on those two things, me and you go to the same scene, but you put emphasis on light and I put emphasis on the shape, we're going to have two different photos. So maybe it's understanding how you see and then going after that version of that iconic scene. Yeah, I like that. I think that's cool. Well, speaking of um, speaking of icons and, and all that fun stuff, I thought we could shift gears here in the last part of the podcast and talk about everyone's uh, favorite uh, platform to, to bash right now, which is Instagram. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people are shifting away from that particular platform, although I yeah. personally like using it still, but that's me. And I know that you have some some negative views on Instagram as well, more from a holistic perspective. And I'd be curious if you could share with the audience what those views are. Yeah, I've got some opinions. Hey, opinions, <laughs> opinions are good, man. Yeah. Make well, sure it's an opinion that at least half of our listeners will hate you for. Oh, okay, good. So let me start off with, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to me, Instagram is the Napster of images. When Napster came out, this was the first time we could just gorge ourselves on our favorite songs. And that's what we did. We downloaded our favorite songs. We played them over and over. We didn't have to listen to an hour of other songs and then several commercials to pay for that song. And then we finally got to hear that song that we loved. And then we wouldn't hear that song again for like three hours. Right. But with, with Napster, we could just listen to it over and over on repeat. And so, we lost our appetite for good music and nobody buys CDs anymore. And musicians lost instantly this most significant revenue stream that they had, which was CD and album purchases. 
The same thing is happening with images for photographers. The casual viewer has at their fingertips the most beautiful images that they could imagine. And when I drove the, when I drove, when I rode the commuter bus home in the evenings, I had to stand in this crowded full of bus. So I'm looking down on people that are sitting there and watching them use Instagram. And you would be shocked at how long they stay on images. It's pretty much scroll, 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 pause, like, scroll, 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 pause, like, scroll, 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 pause, like. That's how much time they spent on those images. And that's just like, oh my God, I spent an hour looking up the right hashtags so that would show up in your feed and you literally looked at it for 0.5 nanoseconds and so for landscape photography i was just like i'm done i'm not posting on instagram anymore and for three years i did not post on instagram and then only recently because i was doing the book people do look at instagram to see if you're a legit photographer and you got to have some images up there so i have images up there and sometimes i do hashtags most of the time i don't but i just feel for a landscape photographer or a travel photographer it's not going to get you any business but maybe if you do weddings and baby pictures and engagement photos it's it's a solid solid platform for you and that's all i got to say about that so that's interesting because i agree with you that by and large most of the population they just binge on it, right? It's like they're bored and they're just scrolling through and every once in a while they might hit like or comment on something. Um, I agree with you. That's probably 80% of people out there at, at least. Um, yeah. But I will say that there are some caveats to that. I mean, as a platform, I think it, it has a lot of value in connecting and collaborating with your peers you know, so I think, yep. I mean, I don't know about you, but if somebody takes the time to spend like three or four minutes and actually leaves a really interesting comment on the, your photograph and then maybe the caption that you left, like that's fun. And I actually will take time to engage back with that person. And I might even go look at their work. I might even send them a DM, um, whatever. Right. So I think mm-hmm. it's a great platform for like really good engagement if you want it. Um, but you also you have to be a participant in that. Um, and then second, you you might not even believe this, but I've actually had a few people tell me like, oh, um, I found out about you because my wife is on Instagram and likes your photos and we we're looking hmm. for photos for our office. And she said I should look at your stuff. That happened to me once and I made a pretty good chunk of change on a print sale that way, like, like for a big, um, medical office building. So, Oh man, that's awesome. it is possible. <laughs> um, but I totally agree with everything you just said as well. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of photographers say it's been a great way for them to yeah. meet other photographers and to, uh, and to connect. So for, yeah, and it's good to know that it's not totally just a waste of time. Yeah, awesome, man. So um, wrapping up, I'd be curious to hear uh, who you would recommend for the podcast. I've got two guys that I shoot with a lot that I think would be good for the podcast. One is my buddy Stephen Weber. He works for the National Park Systems out on the Olympic Peninsula. 
and he spends a lot of time uh, deep in uh, Hurricane Ridge and that national park there. So he gets to see a lot of stuff and take pictures of a lot of stuff that a lot of other people don't. Um, not only is he a, a talented photographer, he really knows the technical aspects of Lightroom and Photoshop. And he's often, uh, he can just rattle off off the top of his head, like explain to me like how to do something super complex. And I'm like, all right, well, we gotta wait till we get back to the computer, dude, because uh, <laughs> I can't keep track of all that. Yeah, and the second gentleman would be uh, Hilton Chen. I, I shoot with him quite a bit as well. He yeah. is one of those guys that I would consider like a, um, what is the term when you're a hobbyist, but you're like at the pro level? Like a weekend warrior? Yeah, totally a weekend warrior. But he does a lot of, he attends a lot of workshops and one-on-one stuff with some really talented photographers. So he might have a unique perspective on workshops and education for the average viewer. Awesome, man. All right, well, how do, how can people learn more about uh, your book on composition? That's a good question. I'm about to launch it on Kickstarter. So I guess, yeah. So next week it goes live on Kickstarter. That's where they can find it. It's called A Photographer's Guide to Composition, Unlocking the, the Hidden Language of Composition. Uh, something like that. I just, I just came up with like a new cover and a new tagline. So I'm not, um, it's still not ingrained into my, my head yet, but that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And you're, you're going to use the, and you're going to use the new title, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. The composition, the photographer's dance. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I got to rework all of that. I got to scrap yeah. the, I got to scrap the new cover. I got to scrap right. and change, change my URL on uh, Kickstarter. Yeah, but another way they could they could find me is on Instagram, Facebook, and my website, and it's beauty that surrounds you. dot com or at or all that jazz, but it's beauty that surrounds you. All right. Well, I'll I'll make sure to put put a link to it in the uh, in the show notes so that people can find it and support you, and also support all the photographers that you've paid to license their images. Yeah, that'd be great. By the time this goes live, it should be live. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and hopefully someone at least learned one interesting tidbit about composition or at least um, something interesting that they can apply to their photography. Yeah, I hope they were entertained. That's, that's my goal for this. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining me today on the podcast. I had a great time learning more about your journey, and I hope that other folks will step up to the plate and support your project. I appreciate the hard work that you're putting in to make it successful, and it's bound to help a lot of other people. Well, if you enjoyed our chat, you can join Michael and I for additional conversation over on Patreon while supporting the show financially. Michael and I talk about the historic wildfires that are happening in the West and their impact on us as photographers and how to cope with this new reality as artists. You can also look to join us for a chat over on Clubhouse. Uh, Bree Stockwell tends to host those either on Thursday evenings or Friday uh, afternoons, so be sure to sign up to Clubhouse or look for the link in the show notes to find out when the next Clubhouse conversation happens. Well, before we part ways, I wanted to thank our latest supporters over on Patreon. 
You are all incredible. You've joined a community of like-minded photographers looking to support the show, and I can't thank you enough. Thanks to Yu Chien Chan, Jeff Lafreniere, Jack Crone, Brandon Hurt, and Larry Milliken for stepping up and supporting the podcast. You all rock. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.